from Creative Force. I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. This week, I'm joined by Jennings Stout of The Fossil Group. Jennings comes from a studio background, working as a Digitech for Amazon, where we met, and later moving into dam management, serving now as technical administrator for The Fossil Group. What does that mean? Well, it means figuring out how to do things like this. It's kind of funny because like you look at it as like, originally we were only serving up, we'll say 250 kilobytes in an image for a product that was being sold. With this change, you know, we're now serving, we'll just say 100 kilobytes, right? So we'll reduce it by about 50%. We're talking kilobytes, like minuscule amount of image. However, when you look at the total number of clicks when you're getting billions of image renderings that are being served worldwide, you know, you start going from serving, you know, I believe like in one month we were serving about 20 terabytes worth of images out to consumers. And we reduced that down to six terabytes. Dam administration is huge business and a great career option, especially for technically minded folks from the studio. Virtually every company has some need to store and organize creative assets. And as you heard, some of the bigger companies are serving terabytes of data every month. Now let's get into the rest of this conversation with Jennings Stout. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Joining me for this episode, Jennings Stout of Fossil Watch Group. Hey, Jennings, how are you? Hey, Daniel, doing good. How are you doing? I am good. I don't think it's actually called Fossil Watch Group. I think it's just Fossil Group, but Fossil definitely known for watches. We're not talking about Fossil exactly today, but I do want to say that Fossil's come up twice recently. Once with the episode that launched today, the day that we're recording this episode, with Kimmy Snow talking about, I think she said she was particularly interested in whatever Fossil was going to be sending out as a gift guide this year, their holiday gift guide this year. And I said I would ask if you had any insight as to how that creative is is shaping up. You and I, we worked on that Las Vegas mobile photography shoot for Amazon where we shot like 50 grandfather clocks that they were going to somehow sell on Amazon. And that, I think, will forever <laughs> go down as one of my best stories in this industry because it just seems so absurd now when you think about it. I, uh, I remember those days. I think it was like... It was like mid-July and it was 109 degrees or something like that out there. It was August. It was August and it was well into the triple digits for the entire entire two weeks that we were in Las Vegas, which is about 10 or 11 days longer than anybody wants to spend in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, those days were great, right? I mean, I think we were like probably like 12-hour days working on those, trying to get through all that. The grandfather clocks, all those uh, sofas, end tables. I mean, yeah, it was just an exhausting day moving all that stuff around too. And so you were, the way that it was structured, and there's a point to this listener, we're going to get to the point in a minute. The way that the teams were structured is there was effectively, there's a few photography teams and they were sort of made up of a photographer, an assistant, a digitech. And I think there was like a fourth person with each kind of group that there was, or maybe like some floating yeah. assistants or something. And yeah. your function was as one of the Digitechs. And I think that that was a really, I mean, it was really interesting across the board to do that kind of work that we were doing the way that we were doing it. But also I was, I remember really being taken by how the Digitechs were kind of adapting to working within the confines of Amazon's asset flow 
but we weren't in a studio. We were running off of little mobile hotspots on our laptops in like some pretty bizarre places. And, you know, as a weird clunky segue into dam management, which is kind of the career move that you've made recently getting into digital asset management, it made sense to me when we talked last that like some of your experiences with just get like part of post-production for retouchers, Digitex, anybody who deals with images after the point of capture to some extent in their career has to deal with where do these images go? How do I organize them? How do I deliver them? Where do they go once I'm done with them and what happens to them? And now you've taken that part of your career and, and moved fully into that, just like managing assets once the creative has been created. So I've uh, yeah moved fully into digital asset management. And, you know, I think we look at a lot of like assets as our photography work, any type of like graphic design work as well. But, you know, this also is kind of encompassing things like lookbooks and the magazine publications. So there's a lot more to it, you know, besides just photography work. And I really kind of like pushed into that side, really looking at asset management, mainly because there's an opportunity across the board for utilizing assets and making sure we get the most out of them. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of is people do photo shoots and then either the assets, you know, get used once in a publication and then they don't really do anything else. And then people have a hard time finding them, reusing them, making sure they're maximizing the value of those assets that they spent thousands of dollars producing and shooting. And that's really where I decided to kind of like step in was making sure that people are able to maximize the cost of that $50,000, $60,000 photo shoot, making sure they're getting the most bang for their buck. Yeah, because those images don't go away anywhere. And I think any like individual photographer has probably done what I've done trying to service their Instagram, which I'm very bad at. But like, one of the things that I do all the time is just go like, what have I shot over the last five years? Do I have anything that would make a good Instagram post? And the not so secret truth is social media managers for companies are also doing that. And it really helps if they have a way that they can look at things that have been shot and matching some kind of certain criteria. So what I'm describing here is like, it's not this one-to-one photo shoot and then a suite of assets comes out of that, they get used and that's the end of it. So many images, so much content is being created. Product photography from the e-com studio, editorial lifestyle campaign photography, outtakes from that, the stuff that the designers are doing, all of those assets that are being created, any visual assets that are being created using imagery and other design elements, all of those things, if they're stored in a dam that is structured well and administered well, now become fair game for anything that you have in the future. And in fact, you have an ever-growing library of things to pull from potentially. But the critical key is how hard is it to find things? Exactly. Like, you know, it's that thing of, uh, I guess, like being in a photography background and like I was working a lot in post-production. I would constantly get asked like, hey, you know, do you have the logo for this? Do you have this one image that we used like, a year and a half ago that we want to reuse for this campaign that we're launching and getting those questions like takes a lot of time out of my day because I have to go find it. And then if I'm thinking three different photos, I send it to them and I have to figure out which one that they want. There's a lot of back and forth. In reality, a lot of those damn systems, if you can figure out the way that people are going to use it and make it like easy to use and search for what people are wanting to look for, it's going to, you know, solve a whole bunch of issues inside your company 
in terms of just finding assets. You're not having to bother other people to find these assets, you know, and it just makes that accessibility a lot easier for people to use. So speaking about your role in particular and the idea of people looking for things or trying to find things or asking where they might be able to find things, is your day-to-day role more administering the dam so that it is easily searchable by people looking for what they want to look for and, and more behind the scenes? Or are you also a point person for people who are looking for things and potentially need you to kind of like, almost like a librarian sort of, so to speak, like, Hey, you know, here's a campaign from a few years ago. I think there was an outtake from this. How can we find it? Is it, is it one of those things, both of those things, a, a blend of them? So it's a blend of them, and primarily my focus is in the Adobe AEM and dynamic media content, formerly known as Scene 7, as a lot of people say. Yeah. So I focus in on that kind of serving of the images. Ah. Uh, so we're looking at the best ways to you know, present those images in the right formats for the online customers, making sure that we're not bogging down our web pages with you know, image weight and making sure that they're having the best experience when they're looking at those images. So with that, what we're looking at is really like applying, I guess, dynamic transformations. And so on the fly, we're coding in how to, you know, upsize and downsize images, making sure that the image format is responsive to the design. So if a Mac computer is trying to stream a video on there, it'll stream a process different than, say, the PC and based on the browsers. So... My job is kind of figuring out, you know, the best practices for streaming content, loading the content into the web page, expanding those, I guess, expanding the capabilities that we currently have with the software Hmm. to make sure we're getting the best experience out there for Fossil Group. An entire other part of the spectrum than even just like usability and storage and and a library of assets, which is... It's so fascinating, and this is an area that you know I, I'm interested in exploring more with the podcast, especially because I think that, like, and I'm curious to know both how long you've been in the role, Jennings, and if you've felt like you've been long enough to sort of observe some shifts, because as you and I both know, there have been some substantial technological shifts over the last few years in our industry, one of which is highlighted to me every day, which is exactly how easy it is to drop out a background now. And it was not that easy in like 2020. It wasn't as easy. I mean, if you knew where to look, it was easy. Yep. But now everybody knows it's easy. Anyway, I don't want to harp on that. It's just still mind-blowing to me how hard that was for so long and <laughs> now how easy it is. The idea of dynamic assets, assets that are no longer a sort of locked point in time, whether it's something as quote unquote simple as changing a background for the purpose of serving that image in an email with a different color scheme or whatever, or an up to and including things that we've talked about on this podcast before also, which is 3D rendered garments on existing shots of models or whatever the technology is behind the scenes. Not even to mention everything that you just said, all the delivery and compression of fully three-dimensional assets, which is like we are not not knocking at the door. It's slowly creaking open this ability by companies, I think, to, to leverage 3D assets in ways that probably we, the consumers, are unaware of still to this day. Yep. It's a fascinating part of the dam systems that I don't know that people have given. I, I mean, I'm sure there are people that have given it that. But like somebody like me, even, who's well relatively well-versed in sort of the ins and outs of what we do every day, 
it's a full-time job for you, it sounds like, to just make sure that things are getting delivered the way that we want them to be delivered. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we'll find, I guess, just like various issues, you know, so we're working with assets that go all the way back to like 2010. So when I was in college, like I'm working with assets that old that we're still utilizing today to, you know, sell our products. And that's really like, I guess the interesting part of it is that the systems that have been developed, we can, you know, utilize a 14-year-old asset or going on 14 years and still make that asset like look the best that it can. And really, you know, we're starting to, you know, adapt into different ways of doing like virtual try-ons, you know, there's different tools for that. And all they're able to do is just, you know, capture the images and, you know, create those virtual try-on experiences for customers from that. Virtual try-on is like, I mean, I don't want to say it's here, but I know that virtual try-on and shoes is like, we were talking at the beginning of this year that by the end of the year, we'll expect it to be quite a bit more widespread than it was even at the beginning of the year. But I know that I first saw virtual try-on technology for watches in 2019 when we were shooting stills for movement and we were getting pitched this technology all the time. And it's, it's at the time I was very skeptical. And I think I've probably shared this before because for me, it's just, I know that I, I'm not sure if I can trust that what I'm seeing is represented exactly the right way. I can get over the sort of cartooniness of the 3D model and the AR thing, but it was more about like, you know, the considerations that you're making partially when you're buying a watch is like, how does that watch face fit on my arm and on my wrist? Like everybody's body geometry is so different. Like what's the right size of case for me? Yep. And the virtual stuff, the AR stuff, even from way back in the day when Amazon did it, was doing it with like furniture in your living room. Is I'm still just like, I'm not sure if I trust that that size is is accurate to my level of discernment here, you know? (laughs) But yeah, all of that was a long way around to say that, like, we will get there. We'll get to the point where you'll have the consumer trust that the AR experiences of a virtual try-on are accurate enough for them to get the information they need. And there's a lot of technological problems on serving up those assets and that we have to also be working on all of the time. And I think that's a really interesting part of this damn conversation, which again, is that it's not just focused solely on storing those assets in an efficient way that's easy to access and catalog and find things that you need to find, but also creating integrations with services like Scene 7 and other dynamic asset delivery modules, and then just making sure that all of that works. I actually have some experience with Scene 7 from way back in like 2010 or or even between 2007 and 2013. And part of it was creating window treatments, um, taking like swatches of fabrics for window treatments, like shades and and, Mm -hmm. um, blinds and draperies and things. And then sitting there with a bunch of sliders, trying to slide the pattern repeat around until it looked vaguely accurate. (laughs) Like, is it the right size? (laughs) Is it the right, are, are the dimensions correct? And then does it not look super, super, super duper fake in an embarrassing way? And this was back in, I mean, this was over 13 years ago now. Yeah. And, you know, I would say dynamic media for the cloud has changed a lot more, but dynamic media classic, still the same old thing. So, yeah, there's definitely some of those, Yeah, you know, this could probably be a little bit better. And, you know, you know, you'd mentioned like the 3D models. And I really think that that's where it's moving, right? Like, I get the whole like corniness and 
you know, the rendering of it doesn't quite look right. But, you know, a consumer perspective, it's like, do they really care about that? Yeah. You know, I think like I look at it as like getting a reference for like a size of something, making sure that that part's the most accurate. Whereas, you know, the rendering of how it looks on my arm, it's like it'd be nice if it was super high quality, which, you know, they're working on being able to deliver that. But at the same time, I think a lot of consumers know that like a lot of those 3D kind of processes are not going to be top notch. And part of that, if I'm if I'm thinking about who are the forward thinking creative teams and media teams out there now, for me, it's it's the teams that are acknowledging everything that you just said about like, mm-hmm. you know, right right now today there might be some elements to try on that aren't what we sh- think they should be technologically. They don't look quite right. There's that issue, right? But we absolutely will get there. And this is where I think the intersection of AI, 3D, and e-commerce content kind of all coincide. I think in e-com creative production, it's going to be less generative AI on sort of the day-to-day things. I think it's going to be more using AI to turn a 3D render into a very convincing product image. And the benefit yes. that today's teams will have to that is that if they are starting with a 3D model of the product that they're selling, instead of, if you think about it, and they're almost like sort of skipping a step in some ways, bear with me, this isn't sounding exactly the way that I wanted to, but if you think about getting a physical sample made, you're designing the sample, or I guess the steps are out of order. You design the sample, somebody's designing the thing. At Fossil Group or any of those brands, somebody is designing that product in a program that can create a 3D model of some level of, of efficacy, right? It'll look some, some level of convincingness. Yep. Then they produce the sample. Then we take a picture of that sample. And then that's what we, we use the picture for the rest of the stuff. We're adding a whole bunch of extra steps when we could probably be taking that and should be taking that 3d model, bringing it into some kind of a dance system stored as a 3d asset, building in the layers of technology. We need to turn it from a 3d asset into very convincing product images that we can use to put on our website today. Yes. And then at the baseline, we have that 3d asset to now use to tackle any future thing we want to do with it. Do we want to do try on? Let's do try on. Do we want to be able to buy this DKNY bag in Roblox? Let's put it in Roblox. Like (laughs) what, you know, whatever we can. Now we have a digitized version of the sample that we never even had to produce a physical sample to actually shoot it and go from that to almost any possible content needs that we might have with the exception in the short term of doing like lifestyle photography and, and, and things like that, which we'll still continue to do sort of in the traditional way. But even speaking as somebody who genuinely loves to shoot bags, I would love to shoot that DKNY bag. I just want to spend all day with it, make it look as good as it possibly can. It makes no sense for production teams to be working, to not be capturing digital models of every product they sell, because who knows what we might be able to use it for in a year or five years. Yeah. And, you know, looking at like that kind of, dam system as a whole when you're looking at those 3d models you know when you you're looking at that dkny bag it's not just usually one variant and colorway or pattern it's usually the same shape same style and then you've got five different color variants three different patterns and so if you can figure out how to you know map all that in make it look right with the 3d model then all of a sudden instead of you know shooting i guess what is that like eight different variants or eight different colorways of that bag, you now only have to produce one bag and then you can apply all those different like textures and filters and things like that to the bag to produce all eight of those images. And it's a, 
in a way, it's a cost-effective approach, but you do have to make sure that you can manage that well. And also, I think, render things really in a timely fashion because nobody wants to be waiting around for images to render. Nobody wants to wait around for different products and like things like that to load. I was just thinking about this the other day because I have this weird... I have a mesh Wi-Fi network at home and the footprint of the mesh network extends slightly past my property. So when I take my dog for a walk, if I happen to be trying to browse something on my phone, the moment when I'm halfway down the block and I have to switch between Wi-Fi and cellular, it usually results in like, it'll inevitably happen that I'm trying to load a bunch of images or something. And then I, it, it has a hard time. And I had to remind myself the other day, there was a time in history when that was totally normal and accepted, even on our phones. <laughs> like, even on our yeah. phones, there was a time when things loaded really slowly. And now I was like, what's going on? I have to restart my phone because now, because like this is, it, it never, <laughs> it's not supposed to work like this anymore. And the thing is, is like, it's easy to think from a consumer standpoint that technology has progressed to the point with like website management, CMSs, digital asset delivery, all of that stuff, that it's just a non-consideration anymore. And the truth is, it still is. Somebody still is thinking about it. Image size still is an important thing. Just because we can accept 5,000 by 5,000 pixel high-definition images into our stream of stuff that's eventually going to end up on the website doesn't mean that we that, that it just like no, nobody's doing the work of making sure that everything works the way it's supposed to behind the scenes. And that's only going to get more and more because those 3D models have... I mean, if you think about 2D to 3D, that's just an infinite amount of extra data. That's like it's mag yeah. it's orders of magnitude more data than than an image is going to be. And there's a lot of important things that people need to know, especially, you know, in dam administration and all across the, the workflow, what it's going to take to be able to work with that kind of media. And that is like, again, like I said, I don't think it's knocking at the door. I think the door is slowly creaking open and it's going to seismically shift again here in a year or two. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned like kind of like that process, right? If like when you switch that internet connection, like I wish everybody had one gig speed, like all the time everywhere, but we know that's not possible. And I think one company that does that really well is, you know, YouTube video. And mm. so when I'm on my home network watching, like I'm streaming like a 4k video, no problems. And then as soon as I get off of the Wi-Fi network, you know, you see that quality drop. And that's one of those content deliveries aspects of like asset management, right? Is we want to make sure that the consumer is still getting the data, regardless of what's happening. Even if they drop down to 240p, you know, you might say like, you know, what the crap is this? Like, I can't even see anything. Yeah. But you're still getting the information to your phone to, you know, either digest it and, you know, review and make that decision. Mm. You remember the days, you remember the early days of Netflix streaming when you kind of, sometimes you just pause <laughs> the show you're going to watch for a few minutes to let it buffer, go get a snack oh, yeah. and then come back. Boy, it's come such a long way since then. I'm curious, like what parts of your job in the studio and, and working as like a Digitech and a retoucher and the various other roles that you occupied, do you feel like really prepared you for this role in dam administration? Because you're not the first sort of creative studio person to make this transition that's, that that uh, we've talked to on this podcast. My colleague, Caitlin, interviewed um, Carrie Wayland, who was also a fine art photographer who just loved organization and got into dam administration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people our age, there's a lot of people younger than us that are coming up through studios that are thinking about, you know, 
maybe I want to continue to be in photography. Maybe I want to go to management, but what are the other things? And I got to say, regardless of what happens with photography, 3D rendering or any of that, it seems like the person whose job it is to make sure the damn systems are running properly is a pretty stable place to be when you're trying to navigate some pretty extreme technological changes in the way imaging works. Yeah. And so for me, like working at Amazon, always exposed to tech. And that's kind of where I started getting more interested in the tech side of, you know, photo production. And so it really started out with like figuring out how to automate Photoshop retouching. You know, I was just playing around with like Photoshop actions. And then that started migrating into like actually writing custom JavaScript files. And then, you know, next thing you know, we're working on creating a dam server inside the studio that we can just start copying stuff over and it really just kind of snowballed from there and what i've kind of found is like what's really nice especially for me because i love tech i love also creative processes is that post-production and kind of that intermediary place between i guess like creative and the people running websites the people that are you know building servers and things like that is there's this kind of communication barrier that I've just come across in terms of working with various groups of people is that creative people think and talk about things very differently than, you know, very technical software engineers. Right. And so being able to bridge that gap is really kind of like where I found that niche of dam administration, right? Like mm-hmm. most of the time people have dams to organize their assets for a large company And in that large company, inevitably, you have software engineers, website designers, you know, application designers that are accessing that content. And then you also have the other end where you have the creative roles producing the content, feeding everything into the dam. And then you kind of have to sit there in the middle and, you know, in a way, play liaison and make Mm -hmm. sure that, like, you know, both sides are getting what they need. But that's, you know, where I kind of found that niche of what I really like is being able to work in creative, but also having, you know, skills that I can apply to tech and understanding, you know, what an engineer needs and what they're wanting when they're trying to display something on a site, as well as like when creative says like, you know, what format does this need to be? I can tell them, you know, give us a PNG or a PSD file and we can get that flowing correctly. Interesting. So I have a couple of, a couple of questions that are sort of disjointed just because there's a couple of curiosity points that popped up for me. One, do, what, what kind of reporting are you looking at in your role? And what are the, the specific question I'm getting at here is like, have any of the brands under the Fossil Group had something like go viral potentially or just like an over, like a much bigger audience reaction? And are you seeing that reflected in any data or reporting that you're reviewing of like this image was pulled this many times and it's a huge spike over everything else? I don't know if you're seeing that. I don't know if the web teams would be seeing that or it's a combination of both. But I'm curious. The second part of that question is I'm curious in this day and age that we're in right now, like we're just talking about how amazing the Internet is and how fast information moves and how it hasn't been like that always. Are there still like concerns on your end that like we need to do something different because this image is getting pulled too much and it's putting stress on the system or our our pipelines are just so big now that we're not worried about it? Yeah. Uh, So in regards to reporting, a lot of the reporting that I work on comes from fossil group sites. So I'm not looking at anything regarding social media, YouTube, things like that, that go viral. But with that, I do see every single image that gets pulled from dynamic media along with our you know, video content as well. And so one of the things 
you know, like recently that we investigated was changing up our image formats to basically produce a more compressed image, but doesn't, you know, reduce the quality. Mm. And with that, we wound up seeing about a 40% decrease in our overall image bandwidth. And, you know, it's, we're looking at like a website. That's substantial. Even if it's, even if it's not a number that's concerning, like even if your pipeline's plenty big, a 40% decrease is substantial. Yes. It's kind of funny because like you look at it as like, originally we were only serving up, we'll say 250 kilobytes in an image for a product that was being sold. With this change, you know, we're now serving, we'll just say 100 kilobytes, right? So we'll reduce it by about 50%. We're talking kilobytes, like minuscule amount of image. However, when you look at the total number of clicks, when you're getting billions of image renderings that are being served worldwide, Hmm. you know, you start going from serving, you know, I believe like in one month we were serving about 20 terabytes worth of images out to consumers. And we reduced that down to six terabytes in a given month. Wow. Yeah. That's substantial savings. And that's, yeah, again, it's, we've talked about it a lot. It's economy of scale. It's the same thing in the photo studio. People kind of scoff at it and they're like, well, how long can renaming a misnamed image take? It's not about how long it takes once. It's about how long does it take 10,000 times (laughs) uh, in a given period? Because like by the end of the week, if we're dealing with it that often, by the end of the week, it means a material difference in what we're able to, to produce. And so, yeah, those those economies yeah. of scale are certainly there on the data side. And yeah, billion. I mean, I didn't. I had never really thought about it, but yeah, globally, billions, and probably not that far away from trillions potentially of of image renderings. Jennings, so great to have you on the podcast to talk to you again. I think your your insight into dam administration is really cool, and this is an area that I want to explore more. And I, I hope to have you back on soon. I actually would like to talk metadata stuff with you yeah. potentially or sometime in the future because I think that that's a that's an area that studios can and should be doing more in collecting metadata to and and you know we can talk about ways from a dam manager how that could happen. Yeah, definitely. I'd love that. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest Jennings and thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. Hey, Ian. Hey, Ian.